Hello folks and welcome back. You are listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Most of you have one or two goals, which include living longer, living healthier or getting faster and stronger. Myself and the guests have just one goal each week to share knowledge that will help you to achieve yours. This week, I have three guests, Kate Offord, Adam Gibson and Carl Bottom. All three are level three British triathlon coaches with a real passion for swim coaching. On the back of Russ Barber's very popular podcast on swimming a few weeks ago, I thought it would be fun to get a group of swim coaches together so that they, or we, because I'm included, could argue over what was the right approach to coaching triathletes to swim better. So, did they argue or did they agree? Let's join Kate, Adam and Carl to find out. Good morning, folks. Thank you for joining me today. I'm, I'm excited to be chatting to three other swim coaches. I think this is going to be a lively and uh, popular, popular chat. So why don't you all introduce yourselves first? I'll, I'll be polite and start with you first, Kate Offord. So um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Um, I'm looking forward to this discussion. I've seen some of the stuff that you posted on Twitter as well, so I'm sure we can have some good debates today. So, yeah, I'm Kate Offord. Um, I'm based in Manchester area. Um, I was the head coach of Manchester Triathlon Club um, for five years. Um, I've been involved in swimming since I was seven. Um, that was kind of my thing. Um, swam to a pretty high level until I kind of found I suppose boys and booze really at about 16 17 um and then I went back into it and started coaching sort of from about 18 so I've kind of done the whole swimmer thing went into coaching then took a break from from swimming and and kind of went into corporate life and then got back into triathlon and then I've started coaching again in 2012 so my coaching background, as I say, is um, I was head coach at Manchester Triathlon Club for five years. Um, I've also got my own triathlon um, coaching business called Smiling Tri Coach um, with Melanie Hayes. And we've got about 40 people that we work with on a one-to-one basis. We've got a really good team and community spirit. And obviously swimming is a massive part of what I contribute to that. Um, and then with my other hat on, I am lucky enough to be head coach at Altrincham Swimming Club. Um, which has grown quite exponentially in the last sort of seven, eight years. Um, and we've got a really, really good squad of swimmers um, from sort of the development end right up to kind of a big group of regional swimmers and, and, a, and a group of national swimmers above that. So it's kind of like my whole ethos about swimming is it, it doesn't really matter like where your starting point is. It's more about like, what do you want to get out of it? What are your goals and how passionate are you about swimming? And, and that can then sort of feed how I would coach you. And that's thank me, I guess. Thank you, Kate. Excellent introduction. Uh, Adam, why don't you tell us who you are? Hi, guys. So my name's Adam. I'm head coach at Greenlight PT. We're sort of a, a coaching company for triathlon and swimming, bike and running. Um, and also a local triathlon squad. So we put on local sessions. Um, really similar background to Kate, actually. So I swam again as a youth until I was probably maybe 17, I think. And then also sort of, I don't know, we'll say go off, the, went off the rails. Um, left sport for a little bit, didn't really get too involved in sport for probably the next 10 years. And then sort of, I guess, in an early midlife crisis, got back into swimming, triathlon and stuff. And then decided to make the career change to coaching swimming first and then triathlon second and now mostly just triathlon 
Um, and yeah, we've got local group that we coach that probably has 100, 150 local athletes. We put on five swim sessions a week and it's a mix of all abilities really from beginners through to sort of top end swimmers. Great. Thank you, Adam. And finally, but not least, Carl, Carl Bottom. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I, uh, um, I'm a swim coach at Orkinson OJs and I currently coach triathlon at Crystal Palace Tri as well in the South London area. Um, I didn't really have a swimming background as a child. Uh, I, I'm, I've done a bit of everything, really. So football, cricket, rugby, cycling, um, even played ice hockey. And then um, got into triathlon, went through the coaching pathway there and did my level one swim course. It was a bit of a CPD, really. Uh, then my son started swimming, so I did my level two, which is where I've now developed into more of a swim coach, stroke triathlon coach. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, COVID impacted that quite a bit. So the swim club and the dry club have only really started getting back into it the last six months. But, yeah, quite busy with that now. <laughs> Something else I need to add is that you are all British Triathlon Level 3 coaches, aren't you? Did you Kate, you're one of my co-tutors on the HPC programme. Carl, did you, do, did you do HPCP or Level 3? Yeah, I did the HPCP. And uh, Adam? Yeah, I was level You were just you were just behind uh, you were just ahead of Carl then, weren't you, on the on the level yeah. three? Yeah, okay. Great. So uh, that that sort of adds some credibility there. So th- these guys know what they're talking about and uh, they specifically know what they're talking about with regard to swimming, and that's the reason why I've invited them onto the show. Uh one of my intentions here is to sort of highlight the fact that you know everybody is trying to help swimmers to improve. But you'll probably find as we go along that there is uh, d- there are differences of opinions and differing approaches, but each of them is going to end up getting people to the same point, that is improving their swimming and certainly improving their swimming with relation to triathlon. And we all have experience, extensive experience, as you've heard, of working with triathletes. So let's kick off and start right at the beginning. When a new swimmer joins your program or if somebody asks you to do a one-to-one session with them what are the key things that you're looking for that tell you about how they're swimming and where they can make the big improvement so uh, I'll start I'm not always going to start with you Kate but I'm going to start with you on this one well, I'm going to start with it depends, obviously, because every good coach will use that at least once in a, in a chat. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because basically what you're always trying to do is evaluate where they are now. And I'm very much about like everybody is different. So their body shape, their arm span, their, the length of their body, the length of their legs, like that's all going to make a difference in terms of how I would start to adjust their stroke. So quite often, and I'm sure that Carl and Adam have had this, you get people coming to you and say, I want to do an Ironman. And when you get them in the pool, you realise they really haven't done any swimming. So that's a very different starting point than somebody who's already, you know, doing pretty well, is mid-pack or getting towards the front of a pack. So the changes that you would make with the second person are going to be really different than the first person. But I think initially what I'd look at is um, breathing is always the main thing um you know can they breathe effectively so that's with a new swimmer even up to people that have been swimming a lot 
I look a lot at like um, shoulder mobility and kind of what their range of movement is. So there's no point me trying to get them to swim in a certain way just because it looks pretty. Um, if actually that's not what their physiology is going to enable them to do it. Um, and then I kind of look at, you know, what training they've done. So it might just be that actually they just need to do a bit more swimming or it might be that they're doing enough swimming, but they're not doing enough of the right kind of training or their technique is is holding them back so it's really hard to kind of give you one thing but I kind of look at like the training methods their physiology and also what their goals are and their starting point and then kind of piece it together in a bit of a jigsaw okay thanks Kate what about you Adam do you have anything um massively different to what Kate's doing Similar vibe. Um, when I'm doing a one-to-one, I definitely have in my head sort of like a little bit of a checklist that I kind of work through. Mm-hmm. But normally, same as Kate said, starts with breathing. Like, are they relaxed in the water? Um, obviously, I always say to people, um, if you've got to be breathing like you would do running, if you were holding your breath running, you wouldn't get very far. Um, <laughs> yeah, so good is point. There, is I think that always works, doesn't it? Because people yeah, go, yeah, you need something you to sort of, yeah. Um, and it's surprisingly um, common sometimes, even with intermediate swimmers, that you film them underwater and then realize that they're holding their breath and they had no idea that they were doing it. Um, so normally first port of call is breathing for me. Um, and then usually body position after that. Um, are they nice and horizontal in the water or are they sinky in the legs? And again, through probably even advanced swimmers especially intermediate and beginner swimmers there's normally some sort of body position thing that is probably the easiest gain for most people i think i think if you if you can get your legs a tiny little bit higher that makes a massive difference in how easy it then is to move yourself forwards Um, and then third point is normally moving yourself forwards what are they doing pull wise or propulsion wise to sort of move themselves through the water so yeah are they relaxed have they got a good body position what are we doing to move ourselves forwards? It's kind of my little checklist in my head. Great. How about you, Carl? Do you, are yeah. you doing anything radically different to Kate and Adam? Um, slightly different. Uh, I would normally look at body position first because my view is really that uh, drag is the key thing. Mm. And you see it a lot with adult onset swimmers that they're basically swimming to stop themselves drowning rather than <laughs> swimming to propel themselves through the water. And uh, if if you can get them doing, depending on the level, if you can get them floating well, then they're going to swim a lot better. Mm. But I also agree that uh, breathing is, freestyle is a very easy stroke until you start to breathe. So if they're doing that wrong, then obviously it's all going to fall apart. So mm. that's a lot of balance is lost. And it, it all affects each other in a way, doesn't mm. it? It's uh, I've started swimming since COVID, you know, the way timetables and um, routines have changed that. So I've started swimming with a group of guys that are good swimmers, but it's not an official master set. We just congregate and we've got a little WhatsApp group going. And there's a couple of quite big guys in there. One of, one of them is a swimmer, but he, he tends to do breaststroke. The other one's an ex rugby league player. So he's got this sort of like, if you go hard, you're going to get better, but he's, he's not particularly mobile. You know, you can see he's quite tight around the hips and the shoulders. He's in his late forties. He's, he's quite a big chap and he just wants to smash it all the time. And I keep saying to him, like you just mentioned drag there, Carl, you know, if you could, he can't, if he lifts his arms above his head, he's like that. <laughs> and and you see him at the hips, he's sort of very tight around the hip flexors. If he could just unkink himself there, he could probably swim faster. Um, but he puts a lot of effort in, but I think 
sometimes some of that's wasted because he uh, because he's not particularly mobile. Um, and, I, and I do think that certainly for triathletes, when you spend so much time running and cycling, that doesn't help things. And, you know, I've talked a lot about mobility in the last few years, and it's the one thing that a lot of people don't do, whatever sport they're doing. Um, and particularly, you know, you need to do more of it getting older. So I definitely agree with the body position and mobility. I, I like your thing about shoulder mobility, Kate. When we had the performance squad in Leeds, we used to get the physios to look at people and ask, is there anything about somebody's shoulders that means they're not going to be able to get into this position? Have they got some sort of limitation from um, shoulder injury or, um, you know, just upper back tightness that means that we're not going to be able to get them into that position. They need to do some dry land work first. Yeah, there, oh, it was actually, it was one of um, Ross Barber did a load of um, swim coach kind of network meetings over lockdown and he had a really good physio on. Um, I think he was based over in Australia and he was working with some of the kind of top swimmers out there. But he did a lot of kind of um, like getting swimmers to stand against walls and kind of pushing back into the wall and getting that pressure and then looking at kind of scapular movement and scapular health and, and stretching upwards so I've started trying to do a little bit of that with some of my swimmers but one of the things I find quite useful to kind of just think about your rugby player Simon is just that really simple like getting them to stand against a wall with their back flat Mm. and then raising their arms and just seeing the point where the back starts to kind of bend and what you realize is like actually that's the point where your legs drop isn't it so if you're trying to overreach and and kind of spear in too high you're going to be overarching your back and your legs are dropping. So just Mm. getting people to understand like where their spine can kind of stay neutral to is quite a good way of then getting them to kind of adjust their body position by adjusting maybe where they enter their arms. So little things like that, that they can feel outside of the water. Sometimes I find more helpful than telling them stuff in the water. So here's a question. I was going to talk about this a bit later, but it's a good point to bring it in now is having seen somebody that might have some of those sort of you know you've identified some of those flaws particularly around body position do you recommend prescribe mobility training as part of your do you you have it as part of the programs that you deliver you know is there is there a session at the beginning or at the end before you get people in the water is it something that you provide for them to do at home on their own on a regular basis that's mobility training that is Carl. Yeah, so um, at the swimming club, I actually help out occasionally with the strength and conditioning session on a Sunday, which is pretty much uh, mobility work, body weight work, much like what the British Triathlon course covers. Mm-hmm. And I found that it's key, the amount of people that haven't got basic balance and coordination, um, mobility around the shoulders, the upper back, mm. it's, and they're very simple things that you can do within five or ten minutes of an evening that will improve your swimming without actually going to the pool. Yeah, good. Yeah, we do a similar thing. We make them do like ten minutes of pre-pool before every squad session, and and it is really simple things. And um, certainly from for the swimmers, they're a bit more kind of in depth, and you know we get them doing loads of different things but for triathletes i know we're really time poor aren't we so actually asking them to do loads of stuff every time they go swimming is not necessarily that easy but even just those simple kind of y w t l kind of 
mm-hmm. open up the shoulders and getting the, the shoulder blades back together. I think just doing some of those before you swim can be really helpful. But you do see a difference with the junior swimmers that do the pre-pull and the ones that don't. You definitely mm-hmm. can see the difference. Do you, you do anything, Adam? I know you've got a lot of people that come to your swimming and, and that you coach as well. Do you? Yeah, so we don't do anything pre-pool side. Perhaps that's something we should add, mainly just because of time constraints and trying to rush into the pool and get in to make the most of your um, hour of pool time that we've got. Um, but we do have a mobility video that gets sent out to squad weekly that involves sort of shoulder and ankle mobility and hip mobility and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think ankle mobility, we've just been talking about shoulders lots, but especially for like... I'm going to be sexist here and say guys, but like the amount of times you see somebody get in and try to kick in a swimming pool and their ankle just doesn't move in a way that is going to provide any kick. Um, it's almost like they're just moving two hooks on the end of their legs. Um, but so yeah, working on ankle mobility is a big thing. And it's quite often in one-to-ones, I'll get people that I'm like, okay, if we're going to improve your kick, it's no good unless your ankle mobility gets better. Um, and yeah, do that. What sort of stuff do you do, Adam? Um, Some sort of just like ankle rolls and stretching. But I I think a lot of like, I mean, we're going to talk about kicking later, but a lot of work with fins on, I think, is one of the best way to Mm -hmm. get that ankle mobility. And I think that's why you see lots of swim clubs when those kids are at that younger level doing lots of fin work. And Mm. uh, you're probably the same, Kate, going through that swimming background. I'm blessed now that my ankles still seem to bend to 180 (laughs) degrees. Um, And it is a thing that sticks with you. But if people didn't have that background, especially if they come from doing lots of running and cycling, your your foot is so used to being in that other position that they just don't have the mobility to be able to do an efficient kick. Yeah, and of course, what you do see, and Jess Learmonth is a particular example here that, you know, for some you know, for somebody that most people will have heard of, Jess came came from a swim background and chatting to Malcolm Brown, when, when Jess started to take triathlon more seriously, they had to be really careful about, running prescription how much volume she did and particularly how much how much high intensity work she did because she didn't have the the stiffness yeah um that's the stability and the robustness around the um the lower leg and the ankle um in order to be able to cope with huge huge volume so it took a long time to get her up to the sort of volumes that somebody say like vicky holland was doing and um but but I do think, going back to your point about simple little exercises you can do, Carl, just sitting on the floor, on your yoga mat, on your heels, um, is is a simple exercise. You know, we, we're probably all sitting and watch the telly each night, and instead of sitting in an armchair, we could sit on the floor for two or three minutes. And I, I had, you know, I'm not immune from this. I had stiff ankles and stiff quads, and it was really painful. But I forced myself to do this. Um, and, and the easiest way is if you can't sit right back on your heels, just put a cushion under you, um, around the back of your thighs and between your heels and your bottom and, and just sit on that. And as that gets more comfortable, just reduce the, the thickness until you can sit on your heels. And that will give you a little bit of ankle flexibility. Um, but I'm glad you were. Uh, yeah, go on, Carl. Yeah, you can um, also simple things like drawing the letters of the alphabet with your ankles. You just move your ankles in rotation and it's all adding movement to the ankles while you're just sitting in a chair mm. i just going back to the point you would make it adam about feet being like hooks i did once have the very bizarre experience of watching a guy trying to be in a streamlined position holding onto a board and kicking and going the opposite way to what he was yeah. supposed to be doing because yeah. he was just basically dragging himself back with his feet um 
Yeah, I don't know if you've ever had any. Yeah, no, similar. Similar. I've had people turn up for one-to-one lessons saying they've been trying to do some kicking practice by themselves and they go backwards. Um, yeah. I think obviously the solution there is you add a pair of fins and then you can go forwards and you're probably working on your ankle mobility and flexibility a bit more. Um, well, yeah. we can talk about that. We, we can come back to fins uh uh, later on because i know a lot of people say well fins are cheating i i totally disagree with that and it sounds yeah. like at least you do adam but um let's uh let's talk about drills now so we've got we've got your swimmers in the pool and triathlon coaches and triathletes love giving drills and i see people you know so these guys that i'm talking about they'll go right we're going to do some drills so we're going to do catch up and we're going to do fists and we're going to do trail fingers right and i'm Okay, why are we doing those then? Well, because they're good drills. But what are we actually trying to do? Well, we're just warming up, really. Um, so they don't know why they're doing them. And I think this, and I definitely think, and if you're a coach that's listening to this and you want to take us up on it, then feel free to drop us a line. But I definitely think there's some coaches who just prescribe drills for the sake of having them in there and there's no real outcome um, that they're trying to get to. So uh, do you... Three questions here. Do you guys incorporate drills into your sessions, either every session or at certain times? Which drills do you use and which drills do you absolutely avoid like the plague? And I'll start this time with Adam. Cool. So I would definitely say like over my swim coaching career, if there was a graph of how many drills I give out or use, it it just it's gone down and down and down and down. You come fresh off a course and you've got this great list of like all these fancy drills you want to give to people and stuff. And then you realize, I think over time that half of them might be doing no good. Half of them might be doing some damage. Um, And some people only need to work on certain things. You could be wasting a lot of time getting someone to do a drill for something that they do perfectly fine. Um, So I definitely use drills a lot less than I used to. Um, Even when I do swim one-to-ones with people now, if somebody's got something that needs correcting, I find myself more and more just saying, your drill is going to be swim normally, but think about this or think about that. Um, and I much prefer that to a drill where we're sort of swimming how we won't actually be swimming. Um, so yeah, I find most of my drills these days might be, you're going to swim 425 swung crawl, thinking about fingertip hand entry, and we'll just call it spearing. Um, and so they're just basically doing normal swim, but thinking about something. Um, so that's the kind of drills that I tend to use. Um, I have some pet hates where like, Right. There's other, there's other people that coach at the pool when I'm coaching. So you see other coaches and how they're doing things. Um, and there's some drills that people use these days that seem almost more complicated than actually swimming. Um, some of those, what's the one where, do we call it broken arrow? Is that the one where we're kicking on our side? We lift our hand up, we bend our elbow, we put our hand in, <laughs> change sides. And I saw I saw some someone coaching a lane of people that could barely swim front crawl the other day. And I'm thinking you're trying to get them to do something that's more complicated than I've gone off on a rant here a little bit, haven't I? Um, you're trying <laughs> oh, to no, carry to... on. This is great. Yeah. Um, you're trying to get them to do something that's more complicated than the thing that they can't already do. Um, so I do see there's a lot of overcomplication sometimes of drills and maybe just breaking things down and making them a lot more simple is, is my approach that I tend to use. Um, we don't do, I remember... Your podcast a few weeks ago mentioning not doing catch up. I can claim that we've never done a length of catch up in uh, about eight years of green light swim sessions, which is my my claim to fame. Um, other drills, we we do use some drills in the squad, but I tend to do things like 
getting them to in the warm-up we might breathe left going up breathe right coming back um so we do stuff to keep people's strokes nice and even we might do some lengths where everybody's focusing on a hand entry aspect and things like that we obviously do kicking drills and we do some sculling drills big believer in sculling and um yeah people especially people who are late to swim in and don't have that feel for the water then we'll do mm-hmm. some sculling um but in terms of like traditional drills i guess if we're talking about things like catch up fists finger trail stuff like that we don't really use those in squad sessions yeah great don't worry about the ranting by the way we love that <laughs> yeah going off on one's brilliant yeah. so uh, please continue uh carl over to you yeah so um like adam I, I use drills less and less i prefer the term skills actually because we're trying to teach a skill rather than I feel drills isolate things too much and you're not actually learning to swim. You're learning to do a movement that might be somewhat light swimming. So, oh, again, the um, focus, as I call it, yeah, the swim focus. So we'll focus on something going up, focus on something else coming back. Um, the sort of drills or skills that I do like, though, are things to, um, again, uh, just to get the swimmer thinking. So if they've got something wrong to over their right hand, I might do one paddle, one fin. So we'll have a paddle on the right arm, fin on the left leg, and they will swim focusing just on that right hand. And because of the paddle, because of the fin, it helps their proprioception and heightens their awareness of what's going wrong. Um, also, maybe try to add some bits in for fun, like with the kids. A lot of them have got wobbly heads. So stick a paddle on your head and try and get them to swim or get them to race. And the paddles go everywhere. They think it's fun, but it, it teaches them a valuable skill that they hit the straight of their head, the further they go, and then they beat their friends or whatever. Um, we used to, uh, we had a swim coach who gave us backstroke to do balancing a cup full of water on your forehead to, to keep your head still, but still focus on the sort of rotation. Yeah. But, Carry on. Yeah. We were yeah. out in we were out in Cyprus in November and it was the same. There was a squad of sort of 50 German elite youth swimmers in there. And there was a point when all 50 of them were swimming in the pool with cups of water on their on their head doing backstroke. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet I bet they were really good at it as well. Yeah. If it fell off, they didn't get any dinner, I don't think. Had <laughs> <laughs> you had um, you yeah. finished there, Cal? Oh. Uh, no, there's a, there's another thing that um I want to get in. Uh, I've turned it a musician's drill where we just, when you're learning an instrument, you slow everything down, learn the piece, and then get faster and faster. Now, I try and do this with front core a lot. I get them swimming at a very, very low stroke rate so they can really focus on a certain area. Mm. And then we gradually increase the stroke rate, trying to con- continually think about that area, which uh, seems to work quite well because when you slow things down, you can think about it more. and then gradually, yeah, as you increase your stroke rate, it becomes normal. Mm. Do you make sure with your, because I was just thinking like a lot of beginner triathletes would feel like they were going to drown doing that. Do you get them with fins on doing that kind of slow motion um, work? Yeah, fins fins are very useful because they, they obviously uh, make you faster at, at sort of body position because you're propelling yourself through the water. So most skills I will teach with um, fins on. Mm. That whole kicking 
kicking things important, isn't it? Because swimming involves you doing something with your arms and your legs at the same time. It's like rubbing your head and patting your stomach. And what you often find is when people do a, an arm drill, they either they either kick sporadically or they're like you said, somebody said earlier about kicking to save their life or they're not kicking at all. And then if you give them a kicking drill, they don't know how to use their arms. And, and back to your point, Adam, about I just want you to focus on kicking and doing your swim stroke together and getting both parts working in you know, in time is, is, is another important skill, isn't it? It's quite an interesting one that actually, because I was, I was doing a one-to-one the other day and um, I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss this, but it was just, a, it was a classic, somebody that was really, really getting very fast with a pool boy. And then as soon as you brought any kick in, obviously like they slowed down. And actually this particular person, they weren't, they weren't massively kicking from the knees and they didn't massively have um, that inflexible ankles, but it was a, it was a timing issue and almost like they were over kicking, but kind of at the wrong time. So like nothing was really working together. Um, and it, it, when I was watching it, I was thinking about, cause I had I'd listened to your Russ Barber um, podcast and it was like, you know, those swimmers that just look really, really smooth and like they're not putting any effort in and and he said that's all about rhythm and I was thinking actually a lot of once you get past the actual sort of kicking mechanics it's also about the timing of the kick so what I've been trying to do with some of my one-to-ones recently is going well let's dial back on the kick even though we think kick's really important but let's think about more the rhythm so looking at like actually your stroke would suit a two-beat kick or if you're going to do a four-beat kick like make it a four-beat kick not like a bit of a random kick here and a random kick there and (laughs) and trying to get them to think about actually like what their legs and arms are doing and as a coach, I've found that's quite challenging. It's quite sort of fun to take it apart and put it back together. And, and actually, there are points in the session where they do go slower than they started off going. <laughs> and then it's the challenge to put it all back together and get them going faster than they were originally. But I think we forget sometimes about rhythm in swimming and we focus a little bit too much on mechanics. Do you have any drills that you particularly like or particularly dislike, Kate? Well, now I've said that, for, for those, I, I don't have any particular drills that I would use for that. I would just do, like Adam and Carl have said, is like, let's think about this. But I have to say, um, in my one-to-ones, I do use drills. Um, I don't think people really like to go away and swim in a pool session, public session, and do drills. I think sometimes they feel a bit self-conscious. So I think, like, when I've got them on a one-to-one, that's a really good time to, to look at it. Actually, at the moment, um, and I do always have a bit of a flavour of the month, I'll be honest. At the moment, I'm doing quite a lot of doggy paddle drills with people. And one of the things that has really worked in terms of people visualising is um, I think when you talk to swimmers, the, the perception of the arm movement is that you're kind of drawing a line under the body to get the catch whereas actually with the doggy paddle drill what I tried to say to them is like imagine you've got a, a ladder underneath you and you're kind of reaching forward to that rung of the ladder and you're kind of going to grab onto it and you're going to pull your body over the hand and I think sometimes that helps people to make the step change it's not an arm movement they're not drawing a line and making their arm move under them what you actually want to do is move your body over your hand so it's Mm -hmm. that forward motion which I think either Adam or Carl mentioned earlier so I think some of those little cues with a drill can really work and then once people have kind of mastered the doggy paddle drill and have that like pulling you know their arm over the rung of a ladder they can translate that much more easily into their into their swimming 
Um, so that's a that's a big favorite at the moment. I do like a bit of bubble bubble breathe. I have to say, um, and I think I, I love doing like now try whispering, now try shouting, and getting them to understand. You know how how they breathe affects their stroke. And I use um, bubble bubble breathe a lot in like open water when people are panicking a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also I change it to relax relax breathe. That's that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I was about to say that I use that, but I call it out, out, in sometimes. Yeah, and that's I don't want to it... treat some middle-aged guy like he's five, being like, we're going to do bubble, bubble, breathe here, mate. And he's like, uh, okay. Listen, I'm the, C- I'm the CEO of this big corporation. There's not yeah. what I'm doing. You see, I'm still there. Blow your bubble, bubbles. Bubble, <laughs> yeah, but so, really, it is a really good drill to get someone relaxed in their breathing, yeah. So, Kate, I'm surprised that at least I thought at least you might have said this, that you might have said it depends. Because for me, um, when you do that initial assessment of a swimmer, everybody's got different flaws. You know, for me, again, going back to the whole drag thing, it might be this. There's no drills. I just want you to be more mobile in the water. I just want you to think about being streamlined and reaching out and making yourself as long as possible, pointing your toes, really reaching, rotating for somebody else. I, I totally agree because I had to do this myself when I when I broke this collarbone. Is this arm was just you know, the movement when I was swimming was it was because it was weak and because the because the position of my shoulders changed, my hand was really pulling out to the right. Yeah, I um, because it, like it was painful. Around the issues, because it was but, painful yeah. to do that catch in the normal position, and I had to do an awful lot of doggy paddle drills just to teach my body, um, particularly when I was breathing to the left, that it would drift out there. Um, so I do, I like, I like doggy paddle, um, but there's uh, like you, uh, Adam. I think we might have had a conversation about this on the level three when you were there about doing catch up, um, you know, and I've I've definitely stopped doing catch up drills now. And the only time I might do some catch-up is if I'm doing that sort of 616 drill where you do a catch-up stroke just to change mm-hmm. sides. But that's really a that's really a function of changing sides rather than a, an actual swim drill. I um, think the only use for catch-up, and um, catch-up gets a really bad name, it, I do. Russ, it, Russ didn't like it either, so no, we're in no, good company. And nobody likes catch-up, but I do think um, certainly when you've got, like, if anyone's coaching junior triathletes, so in a junior swim squad, I will use catch up with the littlest ones because they tend to like have nothing in the front quadrant if you're not careful and they've got no stability. So initially getting that reach and that catch up is a good way to encourage that. And certainly, you know, in a swim club, you're likely to have more advanced swimmers than potentially in a triathlon club. So with little, little junior triathletes, I think there, there probably is a time and a place for a bit of catch up just to try and get the length at the front of the stroke so on that point there case you you've got a very specific group of people and a very specific reason for doing it i think for me if if i was going to draw a line under this particular part it's there has to be a reason for incorporating a drill and it needs to be specific to that particular person so if i was coaching somebody remotely i'd be saying you choose what to do what drill to do and make sure it's something that reflects the flaws in your stroke don't just do a drill because you think it's going to be a progression into warming your body up yeah yeah um, now i want Definitely. to talk about let's talk about kicking then because kicking is part of what people call drills um i love kicking i i used to hate it i've come to love it as a coach and a, and a swimmer it's a way it's a fun the first thing that i think people are missing out on is it's a fantastic way of conditioning your body you know 
I mean, everybody's out of breath when they've done a kick set using those big leg muscles. And I, and I, you know, where this idea came from that swimming, that kicking doesn't really help you swimming, I do not know. But I would say 50% of triathletes use that as their main excuse as well. I'm wearing a wetsuit and I need to save my, I need to save my legs for the bike. To discuss, team. <laughs> Well, I, I'll go first. Um, obviously, I've, I'm from a swim background, so um, certainly in the stuff I do with juniors, like kick is king. And, you know, like if you talk to swimming, then it's 20% of your session should be kick. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't make triathletes do 20% of their sessions kick. Um, my view in terms of triathlon is that you need a good kick for stability and body position um, and rhythm. So I do think that kick's really important. I don't think kicking with a board is useful, particularly for triathletes, generally because the legs sink even more and they bend the knees. Um, one of the things that I would always do is I'd never do, well, I said never unless they were suitable, but I'd never do kick without fins with triathletes um, because like we've talked about, we'll work on our ankle flexibility. I think it's really demotivating to watch triathletes trying to kick with a board and no fins. And I can see why they give up because why would you do it if you're not moving anywhere? So there is that whole, like, how do you manage motivation? How do you manage mojo? Um, One of the really simple ways I think to incorporate kick is to do, I think Adam and Carl have already mentioned it, is like, right, this is a kick set, but you're going to use your arms as well. So basically Mm -hmm. we're going to swim but I want you to kick your legs as if you're doing a kick set. So there's that whole focus on the legs, but they're not in a position where they're just sort of dragging themselves to the bottom of the pool. Um, Side kick I really value because I think people's mobility in the water can generally be quite poor. So kicking on your side starts to work that, especially, you know, working on both sides. And obviously torpedo kick, um, is just really good for body position and and all of that stuff. So I don't use kick as a driver of the stroke in triathletes unless they are at the top end of swimming and they've probably got a a big history in swimming. Um, But I definitely use it as a stabiliser and and, and part of the rhythm. Great. That's that's a good start. Anybody want to add anything? or Very, Very similar to... Kate, yeah, you've got to have, I like the best swimmers usually are also the best kickers when you're in the, the swimming pools. It can't mm-hmm. be a coincidence. It might be because they had a swimming background as a kid, but I think you do need, kicking is there for balance, timing and like body position. It's not necessarily moving you forwards a lot, but it connects all the stroke together and puts you in the right position to move yourself forward. And my, my general vibe is that you want to get that kick as efficient as possible. So they can still do that job, but for the least effort required, if that makes sense. If someone's got a poor kick, you've got to be putting in a good amount of effort to get those legs up into a good body position. That's quite fatiguing. So the more you can refine that kick and work on it, the easier you can get away with kicking within a race or to swim in a good body position. So yeah, same as Kate, I try to I try to sneak in as much of it as I can into a swim squad session without them um, getting annoyed that we're doing loads of kicking. So find various ways of trying to incorporate it. And I think a good session for me, if I can sneak in 300 or 400 meters of kick, I feel like I've done all right. Um, But we might do some of that side kick in. We might, Kate mentioned, not using a board. Um, We sometimes do a board purely for the reason that I can get away with them doing more kick if we use fins and a board. Uh, We do do some swimming with fins, um, just normal stroke, but with the fins on again, nice little warm up thing. And then sometimes if I really want to sneak a bit more in, we might do 
some of the build stuff in the warm-up with fins on. So do some like swimming 75s where you go easy, medium, fast, but wearing your fins. And you tend to find that when people get to that fast length of swimming, if they've got fins on, they're actually doing a pretty good like kicking workout there and connecting it to the stroke as well, rather than just doing mm-hmm. kicking solo. Yeah. Carl, anything to contradict that or add? Uh, no, <laughs> I think my swim coaches will all agree that it's the kick is actually vital to a decent swim stroke. Um, as they've already touched upon, balance, the timing, it can help with your rotation. Um, uh, the way I probably practice it is very similar. I don't do a lot of kicking with board. I will do most of the kicking with fins, uh, but I will vary it in other ways as well, like we do some fly kicking maybe on the back which is something mm. from the swim coaching, it is quite tiring because most triathletes aren't used to it. It is very good at core conditioning. It's um, the, basically the other, I'll probably use backstroke kick as well because it's a very similar motion, but you haven't got to worry so much about breathing. So you just have your streamlined position on your back, kick like as if it's a front call quick kick. So um yeah, then the other traditional ones, most drills are kick-based. So you're getting a lot of kicking in just by doing certain drills. So I'll probably get, as Adam said, about 400 metres in a good session with swimming clubs. Yeah, as Kate said, it's about 20%, so a considerable amount of kicking in most sessions. But, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, that back backstroke kick was something I had down here to ask um, if any of you incorporated. Um, I... I used to feel like my backstroke kick didn't go anywhere, but I've I've focused on it a lot more recently and I feel like I'm moving now. Helps that it's a 25 metre pool at the moment, so it doesn't seem like, you know, if you get to the middle of the length, it just feels like you're not moving. Um, I also, when I, when I broke this collarbone for, for three months, I could swim, but I couldn't use my arm. So I did an awful lot of kicking. I did an awful lot of single arm drills with fins. Um, and it was a great way of, I couldn't run and I couldn't really ride my bike for very long while I had my arm in a sling. So kicking was a great way of um, getting some good conditioning in as well. I've just got a funny story about kick um, and it involves one of the performance coaches at Loughborough. So I won't say the name just in case they ever listen to this. But um, when we were at Mantry, um, I remember doing some vertical kick with them at the Aquatic Centre. So it's really deep. And um I can't remember whether I let them wear fins or not, but it was fly kick and it was like the advanced group of swimmers. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a beginner do this. So basically they had to have their arms up in the air and the chest out of the water and they just had to support themselves doing fly kick. And it was all a bit of fun, but it was really hard work. But it was possibly one of the funniest things I've ever seen to see this one guy who's now, he's an amazing coach and he's an amazing athlete, but he just was literally... <laughs> thinking every time like it was literally like just ducking down coming back up but it's such a good workout so if you have got swimmers that are good enough to do vertical kick it's a really good thing to build up to yeah we um at the swimming club we sometimes have them trying to reach the backstroke flags so you kick mm. with a pole to try and get up I like that uh, vertical kicking i think is is underutilized um it's a, uh, I think it's a great thing. And, and I've seen some of the elite swimmers being able to do uh, at Leeds, they use this where they have, I think it's some of the sprinters, they throw them. So they're there with their arms above the head and they're throwing them a medicine ball. So they've got to catch the medicine ball and then 
get the purchase with the kick to be able to throw it back to the coach. It's not particularly heavy, but, you know, being able, like you said, Kate, being able to kick and keep your arms above the water and head above the water is one thing. Being able to catch a 2K medicine ball and then be able to get the purchase to throw it back and do that repeatedly for 30 seconds takes a lot of conditioning. I feel like we need to just put a warning on that that you might knock yourself out if you're not quite able to catch. <laughs> yes. don't, don't, don't try this one at home if you've yeah, got a home exactly. pool. Yeah. Uh, well, nicely, nicely brought on to backstroke there. So, um, my thing is about pool skills. You talked about butterfly um, on your back, butterfly kick on your back. Um, I, I like a bit of butterfly. It's a great conditioning stroke. It, it, a lot depends on whether you've got the mobility and the timing to be able to do it. And watching a group of triathletes try to incorporate butterfly can be quite amusing at times. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, other strokes for conditioning? Um, I know most triathletes I know get frustrated because they think, well, I'm so slow when I do this, but there's other things, isn't there, rather than going fast? Um and what are your thoughts on things like tumble turns? Can we start with tumble turns? Only because I had a swimmer yesterday and she said, when you teach me to do tumble turns, I was like, of course I'll teach you to do tumble turns. And she said, oh, I know I'm not going to use it for open water. But she said, I'm just so slow on the turns in the lane. Like I'd be leading the lane if my turns weren't so slow. And I do, I genuinely think that being able to tumble turn helps you train better. It can put you, you know, you can train almost with a, if you've got a good turn, you could probably train with a better group <laughs> because you can turn quicker. Like some people it's like turning a double decker bar. So if you can learn to tumble turn, it can just sort of like elevate the times that you can go off and, um, you know, and actually tumble turning and coming out in a good streamlined position is going to help, you know, the starting point of your body position. So I think, it's not a good idea to poo-poo tumble turns. I appreciate not everybody wants to do them, but I think if you can do them, they will enhance the level that you can train at. Go on, Carl. Mm. I agree with the tumble there. It's, um, there's a couple of good things that you can learn from them. Um, basically, you streamline off the wall. A streamline is probably the fastest portion of your stroke that you're going to have in any length. And by... Feeling that perfect hydrodynamics you have at that time, your body can sort of learn that awareness when you're actually swimming as well. So you talk about feel, which is uh, not really a word I use much because feel is it's misunderstood, I feel, in triathlon sometimes. It should be about your full body awareness rather than just how your arms feel. So, um, yeah, it's, it's vital, I think, tumble turning for... I'm, I'm going to jump in and disagree. We have, we've been boring and we've all agreed on everything so far. So I'll I'll come in and say that I do think it's useful. So if someone was like one late, like a let's say they're five seconds, 100 off swimming in the top lane at the swimming and the difference is they don't tumble and that could get them to hop up into the fast lane, then I'm, I'm keen on them doing that so they can step up. But I've got four lanes of swimmers. If anyone in lanes one, two or three, wants to tumble turn I reckon I could write a list of 10 things we'd be better off spending our time on before we worry about doing tumble turns and I did think recently about maybe oh maybe we in squad we could spend some time teaching tumble turns but then I thought I'm going to waste probably three not let's not say waste I'm going to spend three lessons teaching them to do tumble turns and then after that am I going to compromise the session quality for the next 
next couple of months while everyone's trying to do a tumble turn during every main <laughs> set going forward. So so I sort of shied off the idea of doing it. Um, oh, triathlon's about carnage. It's about chaos. <laughs> so you could create that in your swimming squad That's by going, true. everyone yeah. has the tumble turn. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. To, I suppose it comes back to it depends. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. Yeah, no, no you make a you make a good point there, Adam. Is is the, the you know the investment of time into teach yeah. somebody to tumble turn is could that could that be used better? And I think prioritization of coaches and athletes of what's what's going to give me the biggest return for the time I've got available is re- is something really important to consider. I do also agree. I mean, I'm I learned to tumble turn quite you know i'm not a, i wasn't a swimmer from a, a young age but i got to the, you know i've got myself to a reasonable level but I, and i like i like the mastery and the process about swimming um rather than just the outcome of swimming faster and so for me part of that mastery is to be able to um do a tumble turn and do it you know comfortably going turning mm. clockwise and anti-clockwise and being able to get the streamlining but there's definitely a conditioning effect as well isn't there particularly if you don't breathe in the stroke coming into the wall and then you get into a good streamline and you make the most of that and then start a stroke before you breathe um you probably that, that's adding a little bit of hypoxia to your thing yeah. and, that, and i think also that that having to do without breathing for a few seconds um also gives you a bit of um, conditioning for when that might happen during a race when you get pushed under the water and you're inadvertently having you know not been out of breathe so yeah yes. Adam. we we do we practice that in a different way we do lots of like breathing every three five seven nine on some lengths and stuff to, to get mm-hmm. a similar effect and i think that's one of the things actually that intermediate and beginner swimmers when they're excited to learn a tumble turn don't realize is that that turn actually is going to put you in a bit of an oxygen deficit when you do it. Mm-hmm. They're so used to having that nice big breath when they're turning their boat round at the end of the lane each time. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I have noticed that people have tried a tumble turn and then all of a sudden their quality of swimming on the lengths in between goes backwards a bit yeah. because they're not, they're sort of running out of the air that they need. Yeah. Just yeah, I know. Like, well, that's learning to the hypoxic breathing as well. And I have I have people, I think somebody mentioned um, maybe one length going breathe left, one length breathing right. Is I, I do a lot of sets where I get people to breathe to what I call their weak side, the one they wouldn't normally choose. So they get comfortable because as we know, in open water, if, if, if your chosen side is the left and that's the way the wind and the waves are coming from, you, you, it's impossible to breathe there. So you've, you've got to be at least comfortable and most people feel like they're a lot tighter breathing to one side than another. So that's why they don't do it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that, learning to breathe both sides. I, do, I am also a big fan that it's completely okay to breathe to one side mm. 80% of the time. If you're doing mm. a hard session or a race and you breathe one-sided, then that's perfectly fine but i do think everyone should have the skill if needed to mm. to breathe to the other side and also we do get some one-sided sort of habits um from becoming a single-sided breather so i think if you're going to spend your main set all breathing to one side and you warm up and you cool down you should definitely be doing a bit of breathing either every three or breathing to the opposite side to your preferred side it's Just, also um, like injury prevention isn't it so yeah. like on those longer swims and i did a it was like an 8k swim and i'll be honest i breathe what do i breathe i breathe every four to my left side um but i got about 6k in and literally thought my neck was completely gonna cramp up 
And I obviously had to then start breathing to my right side. And I remember then just thinking, yeah, it's not just about the sun or the waves or the symmetry of the stroke. It's actually like fatigue in different Mm. muscles in your body. And you need to be able to kind of work things a bit more equally. In a similar way, I I use breathing for pacing sometimes. I know Mm. that if I'm working hard, then I have to breathe every two to the right. Um, And I have to go a certain level of easy if I'm going to be able to breathe every three and swim nice and smooth. So sometimes if I used to race 10K swim races, I would, for that first half of the swim, I would force myself to breathe every three because one, the neck issue, like you said, Kate, but also it's a way of controlling that effort and knowing that you're you're working at a rate that you can carry on doing. That's a good point. No, I I totally agree with that point, Adam, and I've done that myself. in, in those long swims. I, it, interestingly, I've got, I do have a question. I, I did ask some people if they wanted to submit questions and it's about bilateral breathing. The question is, will mastering bilateral breathing during freestyle lead to better rotation and improved stroke efficiency, which then leads to greater propulsion and faster time. So um, it seems like that's the way you're, you're all leaning. Does, um, does anybody yeah. want to add to that? Definitely. I mean, some people do breathe one side and get away with having quite a nice even stroke but I would say nine out of ten people if they breathe one side they're going to be normally their rotation is more to the breathing side and they're a bit flat on the non-breathing side so having that bilateral breathing will definitely give someone nicer rotation um whether that leads to better pull who knows they might they might have good pull on both sides anyway still mm-hmm. um so yeah. it, it depends uh, what what about other strokes then um backstroke butterfly well, I was I was talking to someone about backstroke. Like, I'll be honest, I never, I don't make my triathletes do backstroke as a rule unless it's a squad that is a kind of mixed squad that they've all done it before. But I was talking to someone about the um, benefits of backstroke in terms of endurance swimming. And you can, and I think you touched on it earlier, Carl, is you can get that kind of easy aerobic vibe better on backstroke because swimmers don't have to worry about their breathing. Um, you also can't get away with not kicking on backstroke. Mm-hmm. So it has got a lot of benefits in terms of, you know, if you want to swim backstroke and work it a bit harder, then you're driving the legs. But also you could use it for kind of easy aerobic kind of blocks of work with people that maybe are struggling to do vol- the volume on their freestyle, maybe because of their breathing, they've got a longer swim to train for. So I think swapping to a bit of backstroke in terms of conditioning isn't a bad idea and also in terms of balancing out you know the the stroke movements but it's not I wouldn't say it's something I do a lot of but in theory I think potentially I could do more of that. Carl? Yeah I tend to use backstroke a lot in either the cool down or the warm-up. One thing I try to emphasize is the rotation because backstroke is all about rotation and it's it's basically swimming the opposite to on your front. So um, there's there's the other the other side of it is it's it's sort of the reverse motion. So in a cool down, if you've had a very long front crawl set, you're moving your arms in a slightly different way, and that can help sort of alleviate potential injury problems. Uh, it's a good way to cool down because they're if they're not so good at backstroke, which a lot of triathletes aren't. They're they're just they're swimming. They're not racing as such, like a lot of lot will in their cool down. They'll still be at the same pace as they was in their main set. So I find it very useful for that. Yeah. Oh, oh, go on, go on, Adam. 
same as Carl. Yeah, I um, we just use it a little bit in the cool downs, really. Um, and none of them, I'm sure they won't mind me saying, none of our squad are particularly good at backstroke. But I do think if they've spent 59 minutes turning their arms around one way, it's not going to do any harm spending a couple of minutes doing it the opposite way at um, the end of a session. So, yeah, it's also a bit of fun. Like, they're quite, because no one's very good at it, it's a bit of a laugh when we all do. I have to get them to do front crawl one way, backstroke the other, so that the front crawl swimmers can watch out for the rogue backstroke <laughs> swimmers because none of them go straight. Um, okay, no, exactly. But that is my only worry. I wouldn't have them doing backstroke going both ways because I feel like it's a disaster. Like cats, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, yeah, so we use that. Good, good point to add here is that a lot of the world's best freestyle swimmers are accomplished backstrokers as well. Um, you know, and uh, we, uh, like, what you guys have mentioned, I like backstroke as a cool down. I think it just opens the chest after sort of most people tend to have tight pecs and that pulls the shoulders forward. I've, I've started incorporating double arm backstroke as mm. well. Like a, like a, I think, was it the old English backstroke they used to call yeah. it, which was actually a valid racing stroke at one with point, wasn't it? Like it? Yeah. Um, well, with a, I try doing it with a fly kick as well. That'll, that'll challenge everybody's rhythm. Um, and talking of fly, nobody's mentioned it. Uh, probably quite yeah. difficult to introduce with triathletes just because of limited mobility. But what are your thoughts on on butterfly as a stroke um, as worth learning? So I tried to chuck some into our squad sessions as single arm with fins on recently, mm-hmm. and it, it worked pretty good. Um, I do think it's if you can get that rhythm that's going on in fly, you get that rhythm and feel in the water and that can only be like a benefit for front crawl, I think. So yeah, we did do that. And the fly pull is very similar sort of high elbow movement that you're trying to do. So it's similar to the front crawl pull. And obviously if you're doing it single arm, you don't need the mobility and the strength and flexibility to do full butterfly. I'm not sure we'd be trying that in any sessions, but here's one here's one for you adam our our swim coach who was a swim coach but used to run our master sessions used to have us doing butterfly arms with front crawl legs for 50 oh, yeah. see i was going to say the other way around yeah we did yeah. used to do the other way around as well yeah i think yeah. front crawl with um fly leg kick is becoming quite a common drill now in like uh, the swimming world yeah, yeah. yeah it's quite good for open water as well if you think of what you're trying to encourage with like a choppy swell if you've kind of got that slightly choppier rhythm, maybe that mm. might mm. come from that sort of front crawl arms fly legs, it it could work quite well in terms of in more kind of rough waters. Well, we've got three subjects left to talk about, right? Um, toys and all the other little things that accompany triathletes onto poolside. Um, open water swimming, which you just touched on, and the actual other stuff, which is actually training. So let, let's just cover toys because we've talked about various toys in in, in sort of brief uh, amounts. So um, thoughts on toys. Uh, firstly, just give us a rundown on some of the stuff that you see people turning onto poolside with, because I know people turn it with pretty much like a huge suitcase <laughs> and open it up and everything springs out. Um what do, what do you commonly get turning up and being sort of deposited on the side of the pool when you're sw- running a swim session? I, I tell them only to turn up with, well, fins and a pool boy usually because otherwise you end up with everything else. But um, common thing, see people turning up with paddles that are much bigger than they Massive, massive use. paddles. Yeah. Brett Sutton's um, responsible for that particular that is trend, isn't he? But, but his whole view on that is really interesting because it is kind of opposite to what we've all, <laughs> what we've all said. Mm. 
But also, Brett Sutton often relates that to, you know, my swimmers in my squad. When you've got somebody like uh, Nicola Spirig, when you look at her, she's robust, she's strong. Mm -hmm. She can probably cope with using paddles like that because she's got a good technique and she's got good shoulder um, structure. Yeah. Right? Uh, There are some people I definitely wouldn't even have paddles on, never mind sort of um, frying pan-sized paddles. Yeah, only only our top lane use paddles at squad, and I don't bother with the rest because I think the risk versus reward is just not worth it. And if you've got that big resistance out in front, people tend to then drop the elbow because the resistance is so big at the hand that the easiest way for them to pull is just to move their elbow down. So actually, you probably ingrain some some bad habits if you use a paddle that's too big. Mm. Okay, so... For you, then, it's fins and pull boy, right, yeah. Adam? Yeah. Okay, uh, what yeah, about you, Carl? Also, oh, sorry. One more, one more thing we've recently started, made everyone in our squad make, which is that we use um, a sponge on a cord for resistance. So <laughs> You are a, evil. They all have a race belt with some elastic. It was their Christmas homework to make it, and they tie a couple of car sponges on the end of it. Um, and I just find that it's better than – I used to be a big fan of using bands in the pool, yeah. But unless you use a pool boy, which makes it really easy, I find that a band just makes most people fight the water and look horrendous and they sink and they look more like they're surviving than actually trying to swim. So we've started using a drag sponge recently in most of our sessions in the warm up. And it's just a really good way of them being able to swim properly in a good body position while using their kick timing and their stroke, but with that resistance behind. So getting a bit of strength benefit. And it's really good at just. I think Kate was talking about that, thinking about pulling yourself forwards earlier. When you're towing something behind, it really kind of puts you into that mindset of, hang on, I've got to move this thing that's behind me. So you actually start thinking about how you're pulling yourself through the water. Mm-hmm. So yeah, everyone also has a sponge on deck at the moment. Ours. Kate, you had your hand up. Oh, no, I was just scratching my head, but I'm, I'm happy to interject. <laughs> Um, no, sim- I mean, similar to Adam, really. The only thing that I've started using a bit recently um, is actually a snorkel because what I found, and this is more through my own training, is um, what I realised is I've, I'm really struggling with the gear changing at the moment. Like I seem to be like a one-speed wonder, which is probably a bit faster than it needs to be. So by taking a snorkel and either using fins or a pool boy, I'm able to like really do that low level intensity swimming and really focus on that front end catch. So what I noticed is that my swimming came on quite a lot just by doing like one session a week of like really slow swimming with a snorkel. Um, And then actually my other sessions, like one of my friends actually said to me, oh my God, what have you been doing? Like working out so fast. And I was like, I actually think it's the snorkel. So recently I've been trying to get people to slow down a bit and and do some blocks of just really low level stuff, Um, which, but but previously I would have been just fins and a pool boy really. Um, but I'm happy to add the, the snorkel now. Carl, what about you? Any Anything different yeah. to the others? I have a slight difference of opinion on the paddles. So I'm not in the Brett Sutton school of doing all your swimming with paddles. As we all, we all know, they can cause injuries if your technique's wrong. But I do use them, like I mentioned earlier, like, like maybe on one side to highlight a stroke fall or even both. So, But that would typically be with high-performing athletes or people with a little bit of a background rather than your novice or improver um, adult onset swimmer. Um, I, 
The snorkel is a good one as well that I've also used because, again, it takes away the breathing, which means if they've got full elsewhere and stroke, they can really just concentrate on that. But as with most tools, it's, they've got to have a specific purpose. It's, it's pointless just having a bag of tools and swimming blindly with your pool boy and your paddles and your snorkel and thinking it's going to make you a better swimmer. So limited use and with an actual mm-hmm. predefined purpose. Right, so there's um there's another there's another triathlon podcast where the host ranted on at least one podcast about people swimming up and down the pool with a paddle on one hand and a fin on the other leg. Just gets my goat. I'm I'm not going to tell you who it is if he's listening, which he probably isn't. He'll know who he is. Um, but somebody who anybody who listens to both will recognise them. And uh, but it seems like for a specific, I think it's a really good set to do that. I think it's really good too. that you can do paddles and fins, then take one of each off and then swap over and then just paddles and just fins and then just and then you could have done like 2100s and almost not realize but you've worked all the different little parts of your stroke so used I'm for, a, start on that. Yeah, used for a specific reason though right mm, yeah yeah it gets you thinking about stroke and your balance and anything that gets you thinking in the water is going to be a benefit adam you were uh, putting your hand up there uh, the only other, I was just sort of thinking one more bit of equipment that we actually have on poolside, which is uh, Finnis Tempo Trainers. Um, so we do we haven't used them so much recently because of COVID and the pools being open and closed. Who even knows what targets to set them on? But we've just sort of got to the stage now where we've had enough consistent swimming in squad that we're going to start reusing Tempo Trainers for pacing and stuff in the sessions. I do think they are. We're going to talk a little bit in a bit, aren't we, about sort of session build and like how workouts are put together. But I do think Tempo Trainer is one of the best ways of, especially for inexperienced swimmers, just getting them to be able to like swim the correct pace all the way through a session. So we do use those for longer reps and longer swim sessions. Right. So what I've not heard from any of you is uh, floaty pants, um, the neoprene uh, sort of like jammers that people are uh, um, cheating gaining in popularity um and uh i've heard nobody mention wearing a watch in the pool as an essential piece of equipment so i guess i'm going to get a bit of pushback on suggesting those two but feel free to air views and start off with you carl yes i think you know my feeling on watches in the water no no i want to hear you saying (laughs) (laughs) um this is a real triathlon problem and one of the issues I have with it is you, you coach typically an adult session and they're more interested in stopping their watch at the end of each length than swimming to the end, than working on their stroke. It's all about what goes up to Strava, trying to maximise their gain so everyone thinks they're swimming a bit better than they really are. And it's, it's just something that's getting in the way that's confusing issues for me. You, you've got to, As long as you can see them or you've got the right goggles, You've got a giant pace clock in most pools. So you don't need a watch to tell you your time. You shouldn't need a watch to count lengths because you shouldn't be doing that many that you lose count. And it doesn't even measure heart rate. So I just see no issue, no reason to wear it at all. Uh, Disagree. <laughs> brilliant. Come on, bring yeah, it on, so, brilliant. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm either or. If someone doesn't want to wear a watch and they're – happy using the pool clock and stuff then great that's all good um but or likewise if somebody wants to wear a watch and finds that useful for counting or keeping an eye on their time or logging their progress i don't really see any issues with it as long as in a group session 
they're able to do that without it impacting other people and themselves. I do think I saw some people on Twitter ranting that um, a watch gets in the way and stuff and they're not paying attention. Coaching 101, just tell them to pay attention. And if their watch is just scratching them, then stop using the watch. Um, but I don't have any issue with someone using a watch. I use a watch for my own swimming. Um, I tend to only record my main sets and I don't bother with any of the drills and stuff, but I quite like to uh, make a little pretty swim graph is half of my motivation when I go swimming that I can have a little look at it afterwards and see how it looks and did I pace it well and stuff. So you um, said you don't use it for drills because that is my bugbear. It's like I don't mind people wearing watches, but and I do this as well on Strava where you're like, right, oh yeah, set 3,000 metres, but 500 were kick and this much was drills, just so that nobody thinks that your overall pace per 100 has yeah. dropped. <laughs> and it is, it's that whole like, you know, and I've coached people that are literally like, write me a big thing on training peaks going, yes, well, my watch didn't pick up the side kick, so I stopped doing that. And you're just like, <laughs> getting really obsessed with what the watch tells you rather than, you know, actually the session. But I think you're right, the pretty graphs, yeah it is good and other people these days do have remote coaches that are separate to their own groups they swim in and they might want to be able to see that for whatever reason the only thing i do find we have to be a bit strict on in squad is if we're doing something off a set off time so say we're doing hundreds off two minutes for example you do need everyone to use the clock because everyone's got different levels of how good they are pressing the buttons on their watches and you can find you get out of sync over a set so i am kind of like if we're doing a set off time, that's off the clock and everyone's using the same thing rather than using their watch. Yeah. It's really annoying though when satellites just aren't going overhead and somebody has to stop their session because they need to re realign a GPS. Um I've had I've had that on the track, but I uh, I think did you post that little meme, Carl, that says the thing I've heard about wearing a watch when it says that you can wear it to swim is yeah. like you actually have to be able to swim in order to wear it. Um, yeah. Which, also, which the new watches, um, I'll mention not recording heart rate. I always find the optical heart rate on my watch when I'm running and cycling is no good. But actually in the swimming pool, the newer optical heart rate is pretty good. Um, I've got some decent data off of some swims recently from it. I think yeah. it is improving. Um, I, I actually know, um, it was actually my mentor on the level three, a swim coach. He actually trialed with his swim squad wearing heart rate straps. Now, they didn't wear a watch, but he uploaded everything to training peaks so he could review their data afterwards. So some heart rate straps do actually record as well. So mm. there yeah. are benefits as well. And as anything, if someone, um, if it makes someone swim more, then that's a yeah. good thing in my eyes. So, yeah, there are... As yeah, um, the local swim club near us, they're, they're a very city of Milton Keynes swimming club, quite a good swimming club with a good level of swimmers. And they, um, I was watching them swim the other day and they were using those Polar OH1. It's the kind of, um, it's optical based and you can wear it in multiple places around your body, but they clip it onto the um, strap of their goggles. So it's on your kind of temple and the coach live can see all of, on the laptop, he's got sort of 16 little boxes up that are all, color-coded with their names so we can get them all to swim aerobically at the same time and keep an eye to see if anyone in the lane is slightly above and it's I think a that's a little bit too complicated yeah I was thinking they're very well drilled there and I'm not sure I'd be able to do that with uh, our group but it did sort of show yeah, another because player. you said you can get them to use a tempo trainer so actually yeah. there's not really if you can work no. a tempo trainer I reckon they could do yeah they could do that the uh Last week's podcast guest was a fell runner and fell running culture is a lot different to triathlon for sure. But I asked Andy about using a heart rate monitor 
And he said, well, I've got a pretty good idea of when I'm running hard. I don't need one of them. I think, um, do you know what? I think that's my issue with it is because swimmers actually, you get really good at knowing what time, you know, most swimmers, if mm-hmm. you swim a lot, you can touch the wall and know pretty much what time you've done by just how you feel. And I think if we lose that or we don't learn that, then, you know, in open water, you're not going to be checking your watch halfway around. You've got to know how you feel, mm-hmm. haven't you? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned about, breathing patterns adam to uh, regulate your pace um uh, what's quite interesting actually and russ brought this up last week when he's talking about yeah so we have different intensities you know 50 beats below maximum because i've noticed that that swim coaches tend to go beats below maximum rather than threshold heart rate is they refer to beats below maximum and yet most swimmers in those squads wouldn't be wearing a heart rate so how would they know whether they're 50 beats below maximum they're doing it all based on um learning when I swim this pace, this is what my breathing pattern is. And so I know when I'm going to come in and, and just that sort of proprioception in the water. I think well, if we just rely on our watches, we never get those skills. And you mm. can translate that into your running then and cycling. Like it, just having that, that kind of sense of your own being is, is really important. And if you don't work it in any of the three disciplines, mm. then you're never going to get it, are you? No. I think that is where a tempo trainer is a good teaching tool to get that pace in. So, for example, if I know someone's an eight-minute 400 swimmer and we stick them with a tempo trainer to beep every 30 seconds, so they should be turning at the end of the pool on the beep in their time trial, mm-hmm. it's really common for people to get ahead of that beep in the first 100. Yeah. And then it's quite humbling for them in the last 100 when that beep is slowly catching them back up and then disappears off in front of them. And I do think that is a good way to sort of Mm-hmm. especially people that aren't swimmers and don't have that feel for pacing and stuff like some of us might do when we swam as a kid like seeing it demonstrated to you in that way helps you to sort of get a feel for okay well that felt easy and I was still going way too fast I've really got to dial things back a bit right briefly before we move on because you've you've mentioned open water swimming so we'll cover that next is um floaty pants um in a sentence yes or no or cheating. it depends cheating cheating right Cut them to pieces. Cut them to pieces. <laughs> Carl? Yeah, I, I almost have the same view, but if it's getting someone into the water more, mm. then maybe yeah. that's a good thing. But, yeah, yeah generally, no. <laughs> if someone's panic training for an Ironman and they've got three months and they've got to somehow do some swimming distance, then, yeah, maybe it's what we're going to have to use. I'm going to throw in a little caveat here. I know that probably we've all recommended that in the lead up to a race, particularly let's say you're going to Ironman Lanzarote and there may not be any opportunities to do any meaningful open water swimming if the water hasn't warmed up. You have to go and wear your wetsuit in the pool. But as we know, that can be quite uncomfortable once the temperature starts to lift. Wearing floaty pants for a specific, again, for a specific reason would give you the feel of being in the water with your hips raised and, and swimming in a wetsuit without overheating. So I've used them for that purpose. Um, but that's the only time when I think there might be an opportunity to use them in a meaningful way. I think it's like people, I mean, I laugh when I say it's cheating. It's not cheating, is it? But I think it's not the magic bullet. Like there aren't any magic bullets of how to get around things. So if you do need to use them in the ways that you've just described them, fair enough. But it, it's still like, it's not a shortcut to actually doing the work. 
Um, it might be like a bit of a sticking plaster if you need to get somewhere quickly, but long term, I think you know they're not gonna they're not gonna make you swim in any better, really. But the, the people I see, they get dressed in the changing room with them. They don't put them on for specific sets. They wear them in mm. the changing room, and then they go out. And when you ask them why, they say, "Well, I, so I can swim in this fast lane." So that's not their true swimming speed. It's elevating them up to a faster lane. And why, so why do you want to swim with a group of swimmers? Because surely based on everything we've talked about today, your stroke's going to be a bit more ragged. And all you're doing is thinking about keeping up with the pace of a faster lane rather than actually the process of swimming better. But there's also that like, what if you get to your race and it's a non-wetsuit swim and you've never swum without your bomb in the air, you know, like what skills are you going to call on then? Oh. Okay, well, let's let's just talk about open water swimming then. We, we uh, the, This podcast is going to be aired early March, so people will be starting to think about open water swimming. Um, how? What percentage of swimming do you think that triathletes should be looking at doing in the open water on the basis that you probably do need to do it because there are certain things that there are certain things that you can practice doing, but you really don't get that, those skills until you go in open water. So how often to start with? And then when you go in open water, what are you going to do with your time there? I think it depends on your background, um, how, how much open water swimming you've done before. So if you're a very experienced swimmer, um, you live quite away from the lake, then you can get away with doing very little. You know, especially if you've got, say, an unheated lido near you to practice your wetsuit swimming. Um, if you're a novice who's never swam in open water, you want to get in as much as possible as is practical. Um, the, the downside is that for a lot of us, we live quite away from the lake. So for me, I've probably got a 40, 45 minute drive. So that's probably three hours out of my day just for an hour swim. So you can't actually do that very often without impacting the rest of your training. So it very much depends. Uh, but yeah, for a novice, I'd say at least once a week leading into your race. Do, do either of you, Kate or Adam, have anything wildly different to what Adam's saying there? I think my my only point is so we're really lucky where I live. Like, there's just loads of open water venues within about twenty minutes, so we're really lucky. But one of the things, so I totally agree. I think the more more beginner you are, or more scared you are of open water, just do it more, little and often. Brilliant. Um, what you tend to find in some traffic, certainly around here, they kind of drop all their pool training because it's open water season. Mm. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just swimming open water now. And, and my belief is that they probably drop fitness and conditioning. So, so I'm very much like I would keep my pool sessions and keep my intensity in the pool and then look at you know, either one or two open water swims that are specific to what you need to do in a race. So it might be that if you're doing an Ironman, you use your long swim to, to do your Ironman distance. Or, you know, if you're doing a sea swim, there's not that much point doing loads of swimming in a lake. Like you need to get in the sea, you need to get in an environment where you're going to be. So I would say do open water, but not at a sacrifice of your conditioning. Adam, um, when you go to the pool, Oh, sorry, when you go to the lake, what are you going to recommend that people do to use their time most effectively? Back to your what's going to give us the best return on our investment. Yeah, so things that I think my pet hate is if someone just goes to the lake and plods around for 45 minutes. Because yeah, Agreed. One, like Kate says, we're probably losing some, some fitness because we're not really doing a very specific session. We're just sort of plodding around. 
Um, so I always think that you should be breaking up that swim in a similar way to you would structure something in the pool. So that is getting in, doing some sort of warm up. If we've got to do a long swim, and let's say it's your long swim is to 2.4K, then there's no reason why that can't be split up into some 800s or some 400s or however your sort of swim venue enables you to break it up. It could just be done off time. You could do three sets of 10 minutes maybe. Um, so I do think adding some sort of structure to your open water swimming is good um, and making use of the other people in the lake. So I always think if if you're in a busy lake training, then you should be trying to draft people or hop up from one group to the other, kind of swim around this group. Don't avoid the other people, like use it for practicing stuff that in a race situation you're going to end up doing. Um, also, uh, my other pet hate is when you get out, Every, there's not very many opportunities you get to practice taking your wetsuit off. Um, so I think every time you get out of the lake, you've got to be getting out and getting your wetsuit off as quick as you can because that's your one time when you can practice it. You're not going to do it. I mean, I'm sure some people do do it in a shower at home and fair play to them if they do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think you've got to be practicing that every time you get out. Yeah. Al, do you want to add to any, anything Adam said? Yeah, I've actually got a note here to mention whenever exit's in the water, make sure you let a race day exit. Yeah, the key is that when you're in there, make the most of your time, practice turning around the boys. You can't do that in a pool. Um, practice deep water starts, which are very difficult to start in a pool. Um, even practice uh, Australian exit, if that's I was going to say Australian exit. Yeah. yeah, a lot of races now have two laps and you have to get out, run, do a comedy dive back in. Um, and if that's something you can practice, then you've got to make the most of that time. Just on that point about Australian eggs, it's one of the things that I've noticed is that, um, and particularly when I've been in races where I've done that, is a lot of people come out of the water and sprint. So they'll they'll come out of the water behind me, they'll sprint past me around the sand or up the bank and back down again. They'll dive in, and then within 10 seconds of getting back in the water, I've passed them because they've just gone anaerobic, and now they're struggling to breathe. I just come out, have a nice little trot round, get it back in, and I'm into my rhythm much quicker. And so practicing that in training might give you a clue as to what's the best strategy. Yeah, definitely. I, that was the first Australian exit I ever did. I did that and it was hilarious because I got out and everyone was cheering. So obviously I played to the crowd, I sprinted past <laughs> them and then literally dived in and was like, oh my God, my heart rate is so high. So yeah, I think you have to practice it and just know like what pace you can go without kind of really having that big spike in heart rate because that's that's a risk anyway, isn't it? You can see that at the Outlaw when when we're doing the laps, when we're encouraging people, you know, do the silly salmon dives, do a big leap, and you see people sprinting down the pontoon and they're getting this big dive and they're getting all the cheers, like you said. And then if you but if you watch them about 20 meters later, which I get the privilege of doing as a commentator, you could see them then maybe sneaking in a couple of breaststrokes <laughs> to get an extra gulp of air. Uh, okay, well, I'm I'm glad you've added something about structure there and having structure. I'm also good glad that you mentioned, Kate, about if if you do all of your swimming in open water and you're not thinking about how to break the sets up, how to have different paces, how how to put some intensity in there, you I think you do lose fitness um, over time. And you can kid yourself that yeah, I'm doing lots of open water and then be disappointed when you get to your event, can't you? Um, so good. Right. Well, there's one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and I should imagine it's the one thing that most people are asking is, how do I train to be a better swimmer? We've talked about body position. We've talked about drills, equipment, everything else. What sort of training program am I going to, are we going to suggest to our um, listeners? You know, is it all about 
getting the volume in? Is it about fast every time? Is it a mix? Over to you guys. Um, who wants to go first? Adam, um, well responded. So a mix. I would say over. you just mentioned volume. I, I do think like frequency, so how often someone is swimming is bigger yeah. for me than how much they're swimming. So are they regularly going to the pool? And consistency, are they continuing to do that all the way through? I think those are the keys. If you're swimming frequently and you're then keeping that up over time, you'll see those gains. And sometimes if people get greedy with volume, then that doesn't always work out. And then we ended up losing motivation or having injuries and dropping back a little bit. Um, so doing it frequently, I think, is the most important. I do believe that just a general good mix of structure through the week, so a session where you're focusing on longer endurance reps, and that might not be particularly long or hard in the winter, but as you eke towards the season, then maybe those reps are going to grow a bit in length and grow a bit in putting some targets on them. So, for example, in our squad at the moment, our Friday session is an endurance session, and we might be doing up to lots of 200-meter reps, but they're kind of progressive and they're not based off of any particular time targets besides go off feel and try and finish strong. But the closer we get to the season, they might increase in length to three or 400 meter reps. And we might start to use the tempo trainers to add some more specific paces and stuff to be hitting on them. We always do one good threshold session a week, um, mainly based around hundreds or me trying to dress up hundreds so they don't look like we're doing hundreds every week, but it is essentially reps between 75 meters and 125 meters. Um, and then we have another session that is mainly easy and technique based. And I think if someone's hitting all of those in a week, that's a nice mix of swimming and the intensity of that can change based on where we are in the season. I do think a lot of, um, I was going to mention this earlier when we were talking about heart rate and swimming easy. I do think a lot of intermediate beginner swimmers struggle with swimming easy anyway. I think uh, we're kidding ourselves. If you watch your beginner swimmers and you think that they're swimming up and down aerobically, that's probably quite difficult for them. So I don't worry about that too much in the pool. I more think about like threshold intensity and building some endurance rather than the intensity is what it is. Um, you might have to get them to slow to a stop in the swimming pool and then obviously they start to sink. So it's difficult. So yeah, my general rule is one technique maybe with some speed session, a threshold session, and an endurance session um, in a week. Nice mix of stuff. Just just to jump in quickly there, Adam, slow swimming is a skill, I think, you know, under control because, like you say, most people feel like they're drowning if they don't. Yeah. Um, are you saying you don't encourage that at all? You don't You don't try to, to coach people around that? Uh, we'll swim easy in the warm-up and all of that, but I'm not sure whether we need to worry about whether that's in zone one or zone two and how we're classifying it. It's as, it's as easy as they can swim without getting messy, if that makes sense. Okay. And who wants to jump in? And add I think that's bit? an interesting point because, um, and I think that's where sometimes the rep length comes in, isn't mm. it? So like for a beginner swimmer, if you know they are working hard, then maybe an endurance session to them looks different than somebody who can moderate their pace. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I always find really interesting is like, I would basically have said exactly what Adam said. You know, if you were doing three sessions a week, I'd probably do that. But then actually, if you go to a pool and you see loads of Iron Man hats training up and down on their own, they're generally just doing swimming, aren't they? And I always think like there is, I do believe there is a place for a long, steady swim in the same way as like um, you go out on a Saturday and do your long, slow run. So I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing to do. 
but I think you see people do that every session I don't know where their benefits coming from because they're not getting any focus so I think sometimes you know people think that doing longer reps is better like actually you know 40 25s with five seconds rest is is as good a way of doing a thousand meters as just swimming it and probably a better way of doing it because you keep the technique um you know so I tend to I do do sessions, endurance sessions, which are longer reps, but with swimmers that I know can hold their form. But I wouldn't be frightened of doing 25s and 50s as as a as a proper set. I think some people kind of poo-poo that and be like, oh, well, you know, I, I don't need to stop every 25. But actually you do because your stroke will start to fail eventually. Uh, just to, again, just to jump in there, Kate, I think that's, that part is really important is it's it's not about whether you're getting the distance. It's about what's what's happening to your stroke, mm-hmm. and that little break just helps you to reset and give everything um, give give everything a break, and just maybe giving you the enough rest to um, to keep your stroke in position. And that that whole point about swimming with a good stroke is important. There's no point in doing a thousand if five hundred of it is with a sloppy stroke. Adam, going back. Yeah, it's just one of the things when we talked about fundamentals at the start and I mentioned sort of workout design and stuff. And yeah, Kate's hit the nail on the head. It's like you've got to keep the quality of swimming good. Um, And for some people, if they swim a 500-meter rep, 100 meters of that looks great. 200 meters of it drops off a bit and the last couple hundred meters isn't particularly pretty. So I think you've got to design your workouts in a way that enables you to swim your best stroke all the way through so that could be the rep length like kate's saying but quite often so we i like to do descending sets for um uh-huh. endurance stuff so we might start with doing some 400s and then we'll do some 300s then we'll do some 200s and my thinking behind that structure is that as we go through the session the distance you can swim and still keep that quality probably drops down a bit so i always think it's good to do sets where either the reps are getting a bit shorter so we keep the quality up or if you encourage people to build the speed through the session, so say we do a set of hundreds, but your aim is to be swimming the fastest hundreds at the end, generally that also tends to get people to pace the session better and keep the quality of swimming a little bit better. Um, yeah, people do you think triathletes are a bit frightened of rest sometimes? Because I know, like, you know, in our swim squads, we they get a lot of rest, actually. Like, you know, they they rest and they chat and they're living their best life. And then they go off and they hit another, you know, another set quite hard. Whereas with triathletes, there is this sort of whole thing is like if you're taking more than 10 seconds rest, you're cheating. And I think actually sometimes having enough recovery, and especially as we get older, there's no harm in like a 30 second recovery if the next bit you're going to do is is really good and meets your objective. I think we're very kind of mean with ourselves. It's like all got to be volume and, you know, I think rest can be very underrated in a swim set. Yeah, I, I think in my bunch, it's not the rest they're worried about. It's the total distance they're going to yeah. swim in a session. And maybe that's where it comes about. from. Yeah, they're kind of like, oh, well, if we don't hit 3000 meters in an hour, then we didn't we weren't as good as last not a session Um, yeah or it's not a session yeah just just to jump in before you carl going back to your quality point there um adam i think often the word quality is used in the wrong context that people talk about quality when they talk when they mean intensity and for me and this this is the same for cycling and running as well quality is about um how good you are with your technical skills and can you main maintain that um, throughout the session and once that quality of movement and activity drops off that's actually when you need to either add in a luxurious rest break yeah per what kate's saying um and you need to just reset and take a moment 
Okay, Carl, over to you. I wonder if this lack of rest is something that causes issues with trifling strokes as the session moves on as well, as you generally do see a lot of them as the session moves on, the stroke deteriorates, their times drop. Mm-hmm. Just by taking that little bit extra rest, or one thing I like doing a lot of is broken swims, which is obviously a swimming thing. So we'll do, say, um, with the juniors, 400 metres is the academy um, distance. So we'll do, say, 16.25, trying to hold their target of 110 or 108, 100, but having a five-second reset every single length so that their stroke never breaks down. They're doing more good strokes at the target pace that they've got to hit. And it means then that whole session becomes quality, as you say, your stroke is good throughout. I um I quite often in one to ones get people where I like to play a little guessing game so I can watch them swim and um there's definitely certain stroke traits that or bad habits that people develop from doing those long continuous swims so they tend to exit the water a bit too early like they're not finishing the stroke off because they've swam until they fatigue and then they carry on swimming so they that short stroke where they're tired becomes their normal stroke um or they tend to have a bit of a catch up stroke so they've had to slow their turnover down so much because they've swam through that point of fatigue and then it's quite fun to ask them what they normally do in their swim training and I reckon nine times out of ten you could pick out the people that have developed some bad habits from doing those long continuous swims when they're not conditioned or don't have the technique ingrained enough to be able to do a long continuous swim and hold their technique with just five seconds rest physiologically the heart rate's not dropping so you're still getting that same benefit yeah holding a good stroke for longer mm. you um we've talked a little bit about swimming faster do any of you guys use um proper hit type workouts where you are and I, it, this is a subject of a um a podcast next week with a guy who uses high intensity repeat training so it's not it's not high intensity interval training with sort of you know 20 seconds on not not the t- typical tabata stuff short short high intensity but short rest as well he talks about luxurious rests like like we might take the mickey out the the sprinters for using um but do you do you use 25s and 50s at sort of um you know at best pace at the 100 meter best pace regularly yeah I, I use sprinting quite a bit um and i wouldn't even say 25s i'd probably go lower to say we might do a set say 10 meters all out uh easy to 50 uh 15 20 25 mm-hmm. um what I find as well, it's not just about the physiological adaptations. It's It helps with your feel of the water, your proprioception, mm-hmm. uh, because if you can catch the water well at speed, it feels so much easier when you then slow down. Mm-hmm. So, so it's building technique. It's building um, sport-specific muscles as well. So for those of us that don't swim very often or as less, you're actually getting them sort of adaptations a lot quicker. I see a bit like strides in running, you know, Mm -hmm. like because you do strides at that sort of comfortable but sort of fast pace. I think sort of swimming, you know, 15 metres of strong but good technique is is really good for exactly what you said. Yeah, we tend to, in our warm-ups, I'll always do some 25s build. So they're probably only doing the the last 10 metres of that or last five metres of that is really fast. But again, just getting used to that sort of building up some speed and swimming quick and... 
the opposite sometimes you do an open water start where you'll just do 10 meters fast down the length and then cruise the, the second half of the length as you mm-hmm. go i think they're I all think, quite i good. think that gear changing is quite hard yeah. for triathletes so that's something that i would spend time on doing because like you said like in an open water race you do if you want to be competitive you've kind of got to get away haven't you so you you know there will be ones that want to kind of stay at the side or the back and and start slowly but some people will want to kind of find their place in in the pack so you've got to be able to raise that pace and then settle in and then it might be that you want to chase the next group so you've got to be able to raise your pace and then settle back in and I think that gear changing if certainly the triathletes that I speak to they're like I've got one pace that's that's how I swim and I think working on that going up and going down is really important we tried I tried a new set a couple of weeks ago on our Wednesday session where we were just doing a bunch of 200s it was mostly based around easy swimming but I got them all to sort of swim the first 200 7 out of 10 and we recorded the time and then their challenge on the next 200 was to be five seconds quicker and then the challenge on the next 200 was to be five seconds slower and then on the fourth one we try and match the first time so all we're doing really was just playing around with have you got that internal feel? Can you kind of come in and swim on a time? Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a thing that triathletes lack, but it's a really important skill when it comes to pacing in a race. We, um, I've introduced some negative split 200s with the guys where they have to swim the, the second 100, three or four seconds faster than the first 100. And the problem isn't being able to swim fast. It's being able to swim the first one yeah. when they're fresh, slow enough. Slow enough. Um, back to your point about adjusting pace there. Adam, um, I remember watching Ollie Freeman, who you guys might remember was at the same time Will Clark was progressing through the ranks as a junior. Ollie Freeman was his was the main his main competitor. Um, he was coached by Glenn Cook. Glenn gave him this set of twenty one hundreds, and he said, "Right, I want you. To, this one is like your threshold pace. So let's say it's one fifteen, right? So you're gonna that's your one fifteen. I want you to swim the first one at one twenty, then I want you to swim a one fifteen. Then I want you to swim a 125. Then I want you to do a 110. Then I'm back to a 120. And he hit, and he did this for 20 of them. In the rest period, he gave in the time and he was able to be within one second of the target time going up and down this ladder at random selected by Glenn. And I don't think he missed any of them. And he said, also, I don't want you to look at the clock. There was only a clock at the end where Glenn was. So he could only, it was a 50 meter pool. So he could only see the clock when he came back towards it. And only if he looked up anyway. And it it was just a remarkable demonstration of somebody's feel for the, well, we talked about feel for the water, but feel for their pace, their effort uh, and everything else. Um, good skills. Very good skills mm. for, you know, somebody who's, I think he was um, 18 at the time. So, you know, I mean, he'd been swimming since he was probably seven or eight. So 10 years of practice. Um so if I if I'm hearing you guys right, actually one of the most important components to uh, a triathlete's training should be the frequency of getting into the water. Um, and I've heard other coaches say if, if you have two hours a week, better to do four times thirty than two times one hour, um, because you you, you 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 probably you get the same endurance, but you get the you get the reminder of those skills more frequently. Um, and you get that comfort comfort within the water. So it's about frequency. It's about consistency. It's about having a range of different intensities and being comfortable at those intensities and having a purpose for every session and every part of every session. Would, would that, yeah? Would yeah. you all be yeah, comfortable with that agree. sort of um, yeah. outlook? Yeah, absolutely agree. 
I do think that frequency thing is more important for the beginner intermediate. And mm -hmm. if someone comes from a swim background, so I know I can get away with um, being all right at swimming off of not very many swims. I think I would benefit more from doing one full hour session a week and it's a proper session. Um, but I think of that beginner intermediate thing, how often you're swimming is really important. Um, so here I've got a question for you on that, Adam, and you, you, the other two of you feel free to jump in. I hear, I've heard it frequently throughout the time I've been coaching that you'll get somebody who has a swim background like yourself or like all of you, and they're doing an Ironman. They'll say, well, because I've been swimming for years, I can still swim that pace off one session a week. And my response is yes, but that doesn't mean you're conditioned to be able to swim it. And you probably won't be as efficient at swimming that distance on one session as a week as you would be off more. And therefore that's probably going to cost you later on in the race. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. You're not as conditioned for it, but is the time better spent doing more running or cycling for that, for the swimmer? I always think you've got to make decisions, haven't you, yeah. based on like mm -hmm. what you've got. And if, you're, if your bike is the thing that you need to work on, then you're going to have to sacrifice a swim if you've got, if your swim's kind of ready-made. I think, you know, ideally in an ideal world, yeah, you'd swim more, wouldn't you, Adam? But yeah. you've got to make decisions based on your time and family life and work and everything. One thing I do notice is that actually when I, even as someone who's comfortable just hopping in the water and being okay at swimming, is the more I swim, actually, it does help the bike and run. It is like, <laughs> it's additional training mostly at the end of the day, isn't it? And it's good all-round body conditioning. So I do think if you can make the time to do it, even for a good swimmer, the more swimming you can fit in is better. Yeah. And even if you can only get that one session in a week, maybe on race day, just go 5% easier. It's probably going to still yeah. put you out near the front of yeah. your age group. So uh, you can afford to save that energy for the, for the yeah. bike and the swim. I've got one of, one of my group asked a question here. So he says, I have a friend in his early 60s who wants to compete at master's level over short distances, but also wants to improve his stamina to attempt a 10K swim. What proportion of his swimming should be focused on speed work? I'd do some strength stuff in the gym. For If you're early 60s and you want to swim fast, I think strength work is probably important. And then you could do, I mean, you guys can jump in, but you could still do a little bit of endurance stuff in the pool, a bit of skill stuff, some of the shorter speed work like we were talking about, like the broken stuff. But I think to get the explosive power you need for a shorter distance than some gym work and the gym work will translate into your endurance anyway so I think adding that in as a as a sort of in your early 60s is probably a good idea to to get any sort of explosive power also if you're training for do you say a 10k swimmer it was Simon it's going to do going to do a lot of volume in that it's not you yeah <laughs> I'm not 60 yet. I was going to say, he's just, he's just a spring yeah. chicken. Um, yeah, you're going to be doing a good amount of swim volume anyway. Um, and if you think if you're structuring those sessions, kind of how we were describing before with some varied intensities in it and maybe some short sprints in the warm-ups and stuff, I would imagine in terms of the swimming element of it, you're going to cover off um, the stuff you need to do for those shorter 50s anyway. And certainly for the training for either of those two, I'd be a lot more concerned about being prepared for a, a 10K than I would be for swimming 50 metres in the pool. Yeah. If you can you, swim 50 metres in the pool, you can't necessarily swim 10K. But if you can swim 10K, you can definitely do 50 metres in the pool. There's an amazing guy that is at um, our gym, and I think he's in the 80 to 84 age group now. He's incredible. And he's basically got world records since mm. 
probably like 50 plus um but he does loads and loads of gym work and, and when he swims he, he really focuses on technique and, and a real sort of mixed balance of swimming but he's really funny because he watches us and he's like oh I wish I could swim like you and I wish I could swim as far as you and I'm like you've got a world record in basically every event you've ever swum <laughs> but it's so funny because the grass is always greener isn't it you mm. kind of always want like you know if you're good at if you can do an endurance 10k then you want to be fast at 50s and I'm not sure you necessarily need to be able to do both ends like you say like one will come from the other it depends like what level you want to hit with it you look at most swimmers they're doing the vast majority of their work aerobically anyway they're doing huge volumes just for a hundred meter race so i think yeah you can do both it's I think just to alleviate the boredom, you'd probably be adding some short, fast work yeah. in, wouldn't you? Because you'd be just plodding up and down all the time, preparing for a 10K race. It's going to get incredibly... Hey, you're still no plodding up and down when you're getting ready for the no. 10K. You've got to have no. some structure there. Yeah, we've got to yeah. keep, keep the structure. No plodding. And well, you said boredom, Simon, as well, because I think, you know, a lot of a lot of triathletes do think swimming is boring, but what mm. they think is that whole, like, just going and plodding up and down. And I think if you do, like, a mixed programme, mm. it isn't going to get boring. And, and if you want to throw some backstroke in, throw some backstroke in. If you want to have a go at fly, have a go at fly. You know, it doesn't have to be a punishment to go swimming and train for yeah. a longer distance event. It should be a bit of fun. And if you need a bit more rest, take a bit more rest, because if that's going to make you want to come back to the pool tomorrow, then go for it. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things we haven't mentioned that I always think my biggest win and the best way to get someone better at swimming is when they start to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, because then going to the pool isn't the must do or the chore of like your training week and you're much more likely to go down there and be relaxed when you're doing it and like continue doing it. So I think actually, yeah, finding a way to enjoy it, whether that's swimming with a group or having a sort of a plan with some variation in it that keeps it interesting and stuff is it's probably one of the biggest things actually is finding it fun yeah mm. any final thoughts carl no yeah uh, basically agree with all that is mix it up keep it fun uh you will enjoy it if you have variety in your sessions mm. yeah I, I think for the majority of triathletes swimming's the one thing that challenges them either with anxiety or skill or or getting to the pool so if we can all find ways of getting them to the pool more frequently, however we do that, that's probably the first thing we should be aiming for. And then we can, all the other stuff that we've talked about today, we can do after that. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a great way to finish, guys. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope the listeners have too. There's been some fantastic stuff in there. Um, if you can just pull one of those bits of information out, um, listeners, then I think you're going to find it that being a big help to your swimming um so kate offered adam gibson and carl bottom thank you so much for joining me today uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show i would hope that we could resume maybe we can do an open water swimming podcast uh, mm-hmm. in the future um well maybe sooner rather than later because it'll be it will be on that time already so but for now thanks for being here and listeners i hope you've enjoyed it too if you've got any questions that you want to post to the group afterwards please do write in and we'll uh, we'll get some answers for you thanks guys cheers thank Simon. you thanks, thanks, thanks to kate adam and carl for being on this week's high performance human podcast as normal there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below please don't forget to subscribe to the show on itunes and while you're there i'd be really grateful if you could leave a rating and a review and please also feel free to join our high performance human podcast Facebook page.
You've probably noticed that we regularly ask our guests for their book recommendations. Over four years, we now have an extensive list. And if you'd like to get hold of a copy, please visit the very obvious link in the show notes. Right, that's all for now. I'll be back next week with another great episode. So enjoy your weekend and I'll see you in seven days time.